well, the SAG Awards just put out their nominations for this cycle. And like the Oscars, they're being pushed back to April. Uh, looks like the, the actual ceremony is going to happen on April the 4th. So still a couple months out. Obviously, they're kind of dealing with the whole... Uh, ongoing pandemic situation and the eligibility windows being pushed back well beyond what they normally would be. And normally, like the SAG Awards, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, they are always targeted at on-screen performances. So some of the the highlights that um, the trade magazines like Variety picked up on was the fact that Chadwick Boseman is in there a number of times in a posthumous kind of situation where he, he's nominated for the ensemble that he's part of in The Five Bloods. He's nominated for his work in The Five Bloods and in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I see Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal, uh, which is a movie we both love and we both thought he was really great in it. I haven't seen Minari yet, but Steven Yeun's in it. Um, and the father, Anthony Hopkins, I heard is, is really good as well, but I don't see like a real favorite in this. I, in fact, I don't really see a favorite in any of the categories. I feel like it's really wide open. My thing about the SAG nominations that came out though, was that I thought Hillbilly Elegy was a bad movie. How is it nominated for all these like acting awards? Like it's confusing. They really, yeah. really love Amy Adams, huh? Well, I, I I can't remember if it was Variety or Hollywood Reporter. It was one of the trade magazines, but they were pointing out that there's there's something weird about Hillbilly Elegy in that it's one of those movies that contains good performances, even though the movie that is supporting them is kind of bad. Before we go too far, then let's uh, hop into the intro and then uh, continue this after the after the break, uh, because I have a feeling this is uh, <laughs> going to develop a little bit more. Welcome to the 90th episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast, a free-flowing conversation between two guys who love film and TV. In this episode, we dive right into the SAG Awards as we did in the cold open, and we'll talk about some SAG more because we can never get enough of awards talk, and then we'll jump straight into the movies Promising Young Woman, Malcolm and Marie, and two new TV shows Lupin and WandaVision. So going back to the SAG stuff, um, was there anyone who really surprised you uh, and I mentioned Hillbilly, Hillbilly Elegy before. That was kind of surprising. And I kind of had a feeling that Maria Bakalova in Borat 2 might get some consideration. But I didn't even think it was this serious. Like, it really looks like she could win from this, like, a list yeah, of like nominees Yeah, like, the, if these categories end up getting kind of mapped over to the Oscars, I mean, obviously, you will, you might pick up and lose a few nominees here and there. That's just the way the, the these things tend to work out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it's it is cool to see Maria Bakalova in there for uh, Borat too. I'm also happy to see Minari represented in a couple of places because obviously <laughs> there was a minor controversy on Twitter about how the Globes, which I remind people always that Globes don't matter. <laughs> uh, but Minari Minari was very snubbed at the Globes for you know bizarre rules reasons okay let me ask you this let me ask you this do you think the golden globes does this on purpose just because they know this will drive up like the attention part of me yeah i'm, I'm kind of like a truther on that you know i feel like they I, I feel like they're starting to like really 
give it to people and just purposely leave names off or do something controversial just so they could, you know, drum up some buzz. Because I don't understand. Minari is an American production. It's spoken in Korean and English, but it's it's an American production. I don't get it. It goes back to that foreign language film thing. Like, what the hell? There are so many countries out there where English is, you know, an official language or a different uh, dialect of English is an official language. And yet somehow they don't always qualify. I don't don't understand. Yeah, well, you know, there's been some some good pieces written recently about like the role of the Oscars and the overall like film world. And, you know, there are some like Bong Joon-ho has talked about how in Korea, winning an Oscar doesn't really mean the same thing as it does in North America or in Britain. Oh, even, for sure. Yeah. You know, and yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously it is it's still in Asia. It still means something to win an Oscar, but not quite the same thing as it does here. Um, so but then so that what role does the Oscars have in promoting international movies is the is the real question. It's it's great to see Parasite win last year. Um, but there's you know, still some people being like, uh, should it have won? Should it have been an only like American slate or American and English language slate? Uh, well, that's what I wonder. I wonder if the Oscars are better served just only including American productions. Like, forget the international stuff, like, because you guys never do it any justice and you guys don't know what you're talking about anyway. Yeah. So why don't you just focus on your own industry? Every other country's movie awards is domestically focused, right? Yeah. So like awards in Russia only basically focus on Russian films and in Asia, Hong Kong, whatever. Right. But for some reason, the Oscars are like, well, we got to represent everyone. And so they have all these bizarre picks. Yeah. But you, and then you have to counter too. like, does, does an international film getting nominated for even in the, the best foreign language category at the Oscars? Does that help raise its profile and mean that more people will end up watching it? I mean, maybe a little bit. There will be some film buffs out there who will look at that slate of nominees and say, oh, wow, these are the most important foreign language films of the year. I, be- I guess I better go watch them. Um, so it's it's a it's, it's a catch-22, you know? Every country's film or what, what their audiences prefer in film is quite different, right? So a lot of times these Oscar films that people love don't sell well overseas like something like moonlight does not sell overseas no but something like avengers definitely does and there's no chance avengers ever wins best picture so you have to like balance you know okay well whose criteria are we viewing it from and you can't as hollywood impose your criteria on other countries yeah and and vice versa there are countries like french films where there are some things to us that are just like too bizarre too violent, too sexual, or too whatever. But for the French, they're just like, hey, this is film. Yeah. <laughs> this is what we're used to. Like, you guys are all about CGI and explosions, but that's not what we're about. We don't even like that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, the criteria is so different. So it's always a fun conversation, but I rarely ever agree that the best picture is the best picture of that year. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. And, and I mean, just based on going back to the SAGs, like it does feel like there's a bit of a consensus forming around Trial of the Chicago 7, maybe being the awards darling this year. I mean, if it... You think so? You think that's the favorite? I don't know. Like other than Sasha Baron Cohen. Only because there's a few important like uh, awards watcher type people, you know, the folks who are really plugged into the the industry who who report on it regularly. They seem to be hearing a lot about that from their contacts in the industry so it feels like you know if if the guilds like the screen actors guild and the directors guild and the producers guild all sort of 
haphazardly come to the conclusion that Trial of the Chicago 7 is the, I guess, the green book of, that, of this year. Well, like that, that's the other thing. Like, because it's so wide open, Trial of the Chicago 7 is the safest pick. Yeah. It's an Aaron Sorkin film. It talks about American history and it leans liberal. Yes. And, I mean, if you look at The Five Bloods, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Minari, One Night in Miami... Uh, news, even news of the world, like these are in some ways inaccessible to certain audiences. And I think Trial of Chicago 7 has just that really broad appeal, not to mention Netflix can probably throw a whole whack of money into like the marketing campaign. Um, and so I, I think you're onto something there with Trial of Chicago 7. But in my mind, there's zero chance that's the best film of the year. I think it's top 10, but uh, it's not the best. We talked about this last episode. Like I very much, I'm like 3.5 out of five on my rating for that movie. So, so it's definitely not the best for me. It's, it wasn't even on my, my top 10 at all. I just, it didn't, I didn't connect with it in any meaningful way, but uh, I, it does feel to me like the kind of thing that would end up rising, if not winning a lot of the awards, it'll definitely be represented in a lot of the categories, yeah, and yeah. it'll be a front runner in some way. Yeah, like I mean, let's face it: the voting body for the Oscars tends to skew conservative, and if, if they don't know, if they don't want to make that bold pick, quote unquote bold pick, they just revert to whatever they know. So this is very much right up their alley. Speaking of films, though, so I finally caught up with Promising Young Woman. Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I'm a nice guy. And Carrie Mulligan's nominate for Outstanding Performance. I thought she was good, but I didn't think she this was her best work. And... I do feel like, and maybe it's the pacing of the movie, and maybe it's just the way it's told, but I did find it a little hard to relate to her. I think she's definitely, like, the hero of this film. She's, like, the, I mean, other than the coffee shop owner. I think she's, like, the one redeemable person in this film. Yeah, well, this this is kind of something I was trying to get at in, in the review that I put up on the site. Um, you can head over to kinetoscope.ca if you want to read that in detail, but... This film is is kind of notable in the sense that it sparks some very mixed up feelings in people. And I think that's intentional. It has a very wonky rhythm. It has very, lots of mixed uh, tones in terms of like black comedy versus tragedy versus thriller. Yeah, I couldn't decide what it was. Yeah, it, it, it's playing on various genres. It's, it's doing a bit of a tongue-in-cheek rom-com kind of thing. It's also doing a rape-revenge genre thing. Uh, without ever fully committing to any single one of them. And for some people, I think that mixture of tones and flavors might leave a bad taste in your mouth. I wouldn't say it's a bad taste, but I, I definitely felt like I couldn't put a thumb on it. Like I couldn't get a, a good understanding of it. Yeah. Like I, the story is straightforward and I understand um, all all the things that Cassie does, which is Carrie Mulligan's character. And, and all, of course, all the guys are douchebags. But at the same time... Um, I remember you saying that, like, hey, this movie doesn't really end the way you think it does. Yes. I didn't really find the ending that shocking. It's definitely one of those films where um, the hero, at the end of the day, still gets the upper hand. And, and the bad guys get their comeuppance. Yeah, and the, the question is, like, um, because the movie primes you to sort of see it in the revenge fantasy light, I think 
it's possible to go into it and uh spoiler alert warning because we kind of have to this is this is kind of key to understanding what this movie is doing so if you haven't right, seen right, it okay uh check out the time codes in the episode descriptions you can skip over this section get to the next bit essentially at the end when we're led to believe that she has been killed by the rich uh dude bro who uh she has been targeting al uh, for the entire movie in the back of your mind, a lot of like experienced moviegoers will probably be thinking, oh, it's just a ruse. She's going to, you know, she's been pretending, she's been faking dead in an effort to let the have these guys let their guard down. And then she's going to spring up and, I don't know, tie them up or do something, you know, get, get that final revenge in a very simplistic way. But instead, it turns out that she in, pretty much intended to be killed. She she had a, a reasonable assumption that that was going to happen. And that's very different. That's a bit of a left turn from your typical revenge fantasy thing, because you would expect your hero to not only um, defeat the bad guys, but to survive while doing it and to get to live her life in and have some measure of happiness now that the the crime has been addressed. But she uses her, she uses her own death as the kind of the key part of it. And that's a, that's a really weird left turn for the movie to make and it it kind of challenges you a little bit to think like did i want her to kill these guys did i want her to kind of take on this sort of bad tactics or the the crime aspect of it her, her plan was kind of poorly thought out like the, the way she like approached the bastard party at the end of the movie that way I, I feel like she maybe could have thought out a little better but do you think it was her intention to uh, or do you think that was a mistake on her part? Like she she didn't expect it to go so far. Or do you think that she actually planned for him to kill? her? I don't think she planned for him to kill her. I think she was just being safe. I think she was being smart and thinking one step ahead and saying like, it, yeah, and that she had all that stuff as backup, kind of like uh, in The Departed where like D Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, he dies, right? But he leaves all the recordings for Vera Farmiga's character to find. It's kind of like that. Because when we meet Cassie, she's already like this broken down character. Like she has no interest in becoming another person or going back to the person she was or forming a new life. Otherwise, she would have moved away and done something else, right? Like even her parents talk about how like you're just moping around. You're not doing anything. And the only thing that she ever that ever drives her is this revenge, right? She She really becomes this femme fatale. And I thought it was really interesting that our modern day femme fatale is very much different from like the 90s femme fatales that we saw. The 90s versions were like, you know, smoky eyed, mystery, low voice, very, very sexual. And not saying that Carrie Mulligan isn't, but definitely she uses that as like a, a trap to ensnare uh, men as previous femme fatale does the only thing is that she doesn't like you know smoke a long cigarette or you know have a yeah. have a pistol you know the one other thing i wanted to point out that was really spot on too was the casting so christopher mince plass adam brody i think is max greenfield as his name where they're the douche bros yes i mean you could have seen that a mile away right i remember in the opening scene i saw adam brody and he's playing like you know the nice guy and i'm like there's no way he is because he's played this character in every single thing I've ever seen. 
going back to his like teen days, I think it was like the OC where like you just can't trust any of those dudes. I, I think they do try to do like make an effort to show that this isn't just one gender or one institution. So we saw Connie Britton as the dean who basically led to her best friend's death. We saw Alfred Molina as a very repentive lawyer. And and so I think it was nice to see those different uh, balances, though. Yeah, it wasn't just like uh, like her campaign against uh, single dudes who are cruising the nightlife. Yeah, she's uh, she's going after all the the systems that kind of help these bad dudes get a, to get away with things. And the one thing, last thing I kind of want to point out that really bugged me is, so once you start learning about her plan, it's kind of divided into chapters. So there's one, two, three, four, and there's a big Roman numeral that pops up. Yeah. The Roman numeral for four is not four eyes. It's one I and one V. It drove me nuts when I saw that. Isn't that supposed to reference the little tally mark she's making in her journal? Um, is it? That's how I read it. I didn't read it that way because it, 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 I mean, you could be right, actually, now that I think of it. So she would be like number five. Why would she consider herself as number five, though? I read it as she intended to die that night. And she did not formulate this kind of like bank of evidence as a failsafe. She actually was so committed to her goal and feeling like she had nothing else to live for, especially since we discovered the truth about her boyfriend, uh, Bo Burnham's character, that she just went there knowing that the only way she could get her final revenge is if uh, these guys had a murder on their hands and had actual blood on their hands. So she she was that extreme about it, that committed to it. And she didn't act like it, though, when like uh, Al broke out of his cuffs. Like she seemed genuinely surprised. Is it like four dimensional chess where she wants him to feel like he's in control? You know, it's- <laughs> you watch too many Christopher Nolan movies. I, I I definitely read it as her being surprised, and she didn't figure she didn't intend to die, but she made a insurance policy in case she did. That's how right, I read it. Right. So. Well, I think it, I think it works either way. You know, it doesn't. Um, uh, it's maybe a bit darker in my interpretation, but uh, you know, same basic outcome. Um, yeah, 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 but I have to say, like, I for a first film uh, from uh, the writer director Emerald Fennell, like, uh, she really bursts on the scene with this thing. Like, she really shows what she what she can do on her first attempt, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, it's really you know really interesting to see what other stuff she has up her sleeve. Um, it's also a feather. In, I said this before when we were doing our top ten of twenty twenty, but. Um, it's a feather in the cap for Margot Robbie's production company too, mm. because uh, you know this is the kind of material that Margot Robbie wants to get out into the world. So I, oh, I'm all mm-hmm, for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Speaking of, you know, other films, I guess. But we were talking about it. Malcolm and Marie. You actually saw this just recently. I watched this last night. Yeah, I was I was motivated on uh, kind of two fronts. Like they put out a trailer for it maybe about a month ago, and. Netflix was very much going hard on the art film kind of route for this. Oh, he's so sensitive. He's romantic. Betty Sweet, right? Well, I mean, yeah. When he's not being an emotional fucking terrorist. Oh. <laughs> I love the way you see the world, Marie. Where they wanted you to feel like mm-hmm. this was a auteur piece where it was just two actors alone in one location um, hashing out their relationship problems and it was going to be shot on celluloid black and white 
You know, it, it, it had all of the hallmarks of like... Like a film nerd's dream. Yeah, yeah for, well, in the style of Mank in, in many ways. I mean, granted, Mank was done on digital, but, you know, the same basic kind of uh, flavor. And then when the movie actually dropped on Netflix, I think it was, it wasn't this past weekend, but the weekend before, the critics came out against this in a way that I didn't expect, but that actually ended up entertaining me. yeah i i thought it was gonna get good buzz too so like when you told me it wasn't getting good reviews i was kind of a little surprised yeah because it it seemed like such artsy oscar bait yeah and i think a lot of these like you know um really focused male female dynamic films and we saw one recently with uh what was that one with daniel kalua oh uh queen and slim queen and slim right so it, it very much about two people in love and it's kind of like the interaction with each other. i always feel like everyone's just trying to capture magic in a bottle like the the sunset series again the, the link later <laughs> a little stuff, bit yeah where no one can really replicate what ethan hawk and julie delpy shared but they just try all the time this reminds me of that so like just briefly like Walk me through the story here. Okay, well, so the story is that uh, John David Washington uh, plays a filmmaker, a writer-director, who has just premiered his feature debut. He'd been working as a writer in Hollywood beforehand, and now he's got a chance to produce this searing biopic about a young drug addict. And he's just come back to a rented uh, mansion of sorts. It's a well, maybe not a mansion. It's like a, it's a nice house in the middle of nowhere that the production company has rented. And he's with his girlfriend, played by Zendaya. Mm-hmm. And uh, Zendaya doesn't work as an actress. They they talk about uh, her picking up a little bit of acting work here or there, but it's not really her main profession. And John David Washington is in his character is in super high spirits when the movie opens because uh, he feels like the premiere went over great. He got all kinds of critics coming up to him at the uh, after party giving him all these compliments, suggesting that he's the next Spike Lee, he's the next Barry Jenkins, and he's he just wants to celebrate. But it's clear that Zendaya's character is not feeling it. Something happened at, at the party that has got her really angry. And as the, the first act of the movie unfolds, you start to see uh, a fight kind of blowing up almost out of nowhere. And initially, it seems like the thing that Zendaya's character, Marie, is upset about is that Malcolm, John David Washington's character, did not thank her in his speech when the movie was premiered, <laughs> which seems a bit like a, a like a little bit of something that you could kind of write off. And John David Washington's character is not he doesn't understand. He thinks it's just like a, a it's nothing. It's not worth uh, talking about. But the more they fight and the more they kind of try to wound each other with their words, the more the more you learn about their relationship. And it's clear that there are some very deep, deep problems going on under the surface and all that's well and good it's it's a fine idea for a movie especially one considering that this was one of the first glitzy movies shot post-covid so it was just zendaya and john david washington a small crew Mm -hmm. in this one location for the whole time and they you know they made some headlines at the time for trying their best to follow all the protocols and everything keep everybody safe the problem is that there's not a whole lot to the movie outside of them fighting and it starts to feel as as good as the performances are and as well written to an extent that the script is you start to feel like you're just a third wheel in a actual couple's fight and 
maybe some people would find that like they take that as a it gets awkward eh? yeah it just gets awkward like you you don't you're not actually getting anything meaningful out of it because it feels like the two characters are only out to hurt each other constantly and you know what that reminds me of what marriage story (laughs) yeah a little bit although (laughs) at least see the thing about marriage story and one of the reasons why i loved it was that it balanced out those moments those awkward uh couples fight moments with actual humor and levity yes and you know and and other characters and things and there were there were ways that the movie balanced things out and you know had other plot but this is all about a basically like you you pointed out uh richard linklater's work the before trilogy where it's just one unending conversation from beginning to end that's the way this plays out but you kind of you lose empathy for these characters because you you kind of stop caring about why they're mad at each other which is kind of essential to right. staying engaged with the movie you keep thinking or at least i kept thinking to myself why do they keep making it worse why do they keep pushing each other's buttons like can't they compromise? Isn't there any kind of um, middle ground here? This is how Hollywood screws up every single relationship out there. Yeah. Because there are people who are legitimately like, if we don't fight like people do in the movies, we're not having a real relationship, right? And, and I think that I think that toxicity kind of permeates through sometimes. And if the whole fight is about him not thanking her in an acceptance speech... I'd get so bored so quickly because there's no real conflict. This is about egos. And I couldn't really care less about two people who felt like their egos are bruised, you know? And now, I mean, it does go a bit deeper than that because you eventually discover things about their relationship. Like, you know, John David Washington had dated other people beforehand. And oh, then, of course. Um, the classic. The old yeah, stuff just comes right that out, stuff, right? Um, and Zendaya is actually, her character is actually more upset by the fact that um, this epic film that uh, Malcolm has gotten all these accolades for is based heavily on her own life and the fact that uh, Marie was a drug addict at a very young age and Malcolm kind of plucked her out of that and uh, helped her clean up and stayed with her through all of the the tough times and the rehab and everything and then he made a film about it but then <laughs> neglected to thank her about it so you all you do is you learn more and more about the egotism of Malcolm and his inability to to see how much Marie brought to his current success and then his unwillingness to yield any ground and all of that's well and good. And you could, you could say that this is probably a fight that a lot of real life Hollywood couples have had over and over again through the decades, you know, creative collaboration has gone sour and, you know, people feel that they're not being uh, thanked or appreciated in relationships. All that's fine, but it doesn't make it, fun to watch it doesn't make it all that kind of rel- uh doesn't reveal anything about these characters it just makes you kind of just sit there and be like man i could have watched another fast and the furious movie instead of been sad for an hour and 45 minutes <laughs> i never thought you'd use fast and furious as an example yeah, well <laughs> um th- well, i mean this this kind of goes back because remember kramer versus kramer with mineral streep and dustin hoffman and, and and a lot of people had the same criticism too, where it's like, I'm done with seeing these people shout at each other. Like it just mm. gets so annoying. And, and the entire film is driven by this 
I wouldn't say artificial conflict, but conflict between two people who can't just sit down and have like, you know, yeah. an adult talk, right? This is the same uh, criticism about movies where um, two heroes are always against each other until the last moments of the movie because they never just sat down and said, hey, you know what? Maybe we should team yeah. up. And now it's, you know, the and so the criticism that a lot of professional critics have been um, levying at this movie is that. Uh, not only does it have this kind of interminable fight in it that you kind of sit through, but it's written by a white writer-director, Sam Levinson, who's Barry Levinson's son. Not to say it's a case of nepotism or anything, because obviously he has done good work on Euphoria with Zendaya. Um, but people are saying that, like, you know, because it's, uh, he's white and his stars are black or mixed race in the Zendaya's case, I guess, um, the there's a bit of like white privilege on the go so that's kind of muddying the waters and the uh, the discourse around the movie um and then there's this whole bit about and this is probably the most interesting part of the movie for me when uh malcolm goes into this rant about criticism specifically this review from a white critic at the la times and he has this very toxic relationship with like, he wants the adoration from these critics. He wants to be told that his work is valuable. But when he finally sees the review that this gal posts on the LA Times website and he pulls it up on his phone and he sees that she was engaging with all the wrong parts of the movie, not the parts that he intended to be the artistic bits. Well, that's his um, fault. <laughs> yeah. So, but he, then he launches into this really long rant and it starts in a good place. And I was like, yeah, you're saying a lot of really interesting things about the relationship between filmmakers and critics and, you know, who's doing the most work and, you know, are critics actually adding to the experience or are they just kind of like hating on people? You know, filmmakers have complained about that for years. Um, so he starts from a good place, but it goes again, just like the fight between him and Marie, his rant goes on and on and on. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, no filmmaker could ever possibly get this angry about a review that was a positive and B like just maybe slightly misguided in what it chose to, to talk about. I don't know. It just, it felt like a lot and I was not there for it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. Like these, these films can be really tough to sit through and, and sometimes for some people, it just might hit a little too close to home. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're if you're really into this kind of like deep relationship, um, magnifying glass kind of stuff. Melodrama. Melodrama. You might find something good in it. You might uh, like to analyze the performances, which, again, are very good. The writing is very elaborate. So you might be able to appreciate it from a technical level. But I think as an overall package, it might be a bit of a slog. Do you think that we're getting nitpicky or disappointed because... We, our standards are so high because we've seen so many really great films. Maybe. I, I think it's um, this is a really complicated one to talk about because of its relationship with the movie business as a whole. It's about the movies. It's about how people look at movies. So there's always this kind of like voice in the back of your head saying like anything that you anything bad that you say about this movie could be diffused by somebody else saying, oh, but that's the point. It's trying to be self-referential. It's trying to be self-aware about how right. stupid this whole like art versus commerce thing is. And, you know, the relationship, again, like I said, the relationship of critics to, to filmmakers and all of that. Um, but I don't know. I Even though it had so many components that I thought I would like, it's interesting how when you put them all together, I didn't end up enjoying the experience. 
Speaking of enjoyable experiences, one of the biggest series to hit Netflix that's become re- really popular all of a sudden is Lupin. Yeah. This is a French series created by George K. and Francois Ouzan. Premiered about a month ago, so we're a little late, but we're st- it's still topical. 25 years, I believe my father was a thief. I grew up with that. 25 years ago, he framed my dad. Come on. Let go of me! You want revenge on Pellegrini? Who gonna stop me in my moment? This is all a game, Inspector. Who gonna stop me when I'm going? A game with rules. Break me, I don't back down. And I'm the one who makes them. Like the show stars Omar Sy in the role of Asan Diop, who is this uh, immigrant, I guess, from Senegal. Yeah, like he uh, he immigrated to France when he was, uh, I guess, in his a kid. When he was a kid, when he was like in a preteen, I guess you could say, a young ward. Yeah, young ward <laughs> uh, with his father. And his father was a chauffeur, chauffeur for this really wealthy, rich family. That's you know all sorts of privilege, like the worst kind of privilege you can think about. And the story goes basically, and we're kind of entering spoiler territory here, is that this uh, white family, this Pellegrini family, uh, had a really expensive necklace. That once belonged to uh, Marie Antoinette, I think they point out. That's right. Yeah, and it's it's worth millions and millions of euros. It went missing. The homeowner accuses the chauffeur. The chauffeur, as far as we know, is innocent. Long story made short. The chauffeur, um, so the main character's dad, he uh, ends up killing himself in prison and his son grows up an orphan. But his son grows up and fairly successful because he's a master thief inspired by this fictional character called Arsène Lupin, uh, which is a uh, nickname, the gentleman burglar. Mm. And it's like a series of books in France, I guess. The uh... Right, exactly. And so uh, Omar Sy uh, basically becomes Lupin where he is sort of like a Robin Hood type where he's he's an anti-hero and he's a burglar but he's a gentleman about it he's he's smart he's handsome he's a master of disguise because he's so charismatic um he's very much the villain that you kind of root for yeah yeah and he seems to only take targets who he thinks like you were saying a kind of a Robin Hood situation where he he goes after people who are more powerful who were holding their power over others and he kind of tips the scales. Right. And so I had heard that this was good and I was, you know, kind of skeptical because I always am when people are like, oh, this is great. This is the best ever. Um, I've only a, a couple episodes in and you're a little further ahead than me, but I was surprised how casual it is, how sort of like a cartoon, how lighthearted it can be. Um, it doesn't really seem to take anything super seriously. I don't know if you felt that though. Yeah, that's it. That's actually one of the better kind of ways of describing it that I that I now that I think about it. Yeah, because I was I was watching the fourth episode yesterday, and it's a uh, they've got him Netflix at least in Canada releasing it in what they call a part part one, which is five episodes about forty five minutes each. And I assume, you know, now that it's been doing well, they might do subsequent parts, subsequent seasons, I guess. I was thinking last night about how it's not a particularly violent show. There's not a lot of like... It's not violent. There's a couple of depictions of suicide. You know, there's um, uh, like his father in prison and stuff like that. Um, But you never see any real like... uh, There's no guns being fired. There's not a whole lot of fight scenes or anything like that. And because of how practiced... Asan is at his burglary, none of his like techniques really 
uh, test him in any way. Like he always has a solution for everything. It's it's very much like an like an Ocean's Eleven kind of situation where he's always yeah. fifteen steps ahead. And there are occasional yes. like yeah. um, changes in plan that he has to do because uh, something unanticipated happens. But then you almost always get at the end of the episode that kind of familiar heist film uh, conclusion where. They actually rewind to the beginning and they show you, oh, all those things that you thought were happening were actually sleights of hand or misdirection. And here's what was really happening, which, yeah, you know, yeah. always gives you a bit of an endorphin rush because you're like, oh, OK, cool. This, you know, this there was actually something else happening, a bit of a, a bit of flair, you know. All that's fine, but it just feels like a cartoon and it kind of just makes you want to laugh a little bit because yeah. even in the first episode, you know, you got the dumb goons, right? You got the dumb security guards. You got the auction people who are just like hoity-toity and, and, and the guy who's leading the auction is this like kind of a flamboyant character. And then you got the scruffy bearded cop who, you know, deduces really early on that this guy is the modern day Arsene Lupin, but no one in his force believes him. Right. So so you're kind of already setting up this cat and mouse game. And, you know, it's not like Lupin is Inspector Gadget where he's got all these like fancy tools and stuff. Right. But the scenarios he gets himself in are just like... It almost seems impossible to me for him to pull things off so easily. Yeah, there's a bit of that. Yeah. If you think about the first episode, and it, I mean, I don't care, but we're going to spoilers. But you know how he puts the necklace in the garbage bag? Yes. And then retrieves it later. And right in the middle of the floor, he just like pulls out the necklace from the garbage bag. It's not even a bag or anything. It's like a bare necklace. Yeah. And he just looks at it and he just pockets it. And you're thinking the entire time going like, like, that doesn't really make any sense. Like, if he was as smart and careful as he was, it would have been put in, like, a nondescript bag or something like that, right? And and the, the part where the owner of the necklace doesn't seem to really recognize him or at least hints towards recognizing him, but not really, that I felt kind of like mm, a little bit uh, like an action pick, you know? Like, the, the trope where... Is he or isn't he this guy that I know from the past? You know, is yeah. he good or bad? It, like, it really teases you with it. Um, I was just surprised how lighthearted it is. Um, even at the end where at the end of the first episode where the getaway car is that Ferrari, I think it was. <laughs> yeah. And, and it kind of dro- drives off and it like it, it goes through the glass floor at the Louvre. And it's just like a whole mess. It's just like criminals trying to like slither and you know, yell things at each other. Yeah. Um, it lacked a lot of the seriousness that I thought would come with it. Yeah, I, I think I did. Going into it, I I pictured more of a serious, like a, almost like an espionage thriller kind of vibe. And it very, yeah, very exactly. much doesn't have that. It And I think maybe, I don't know a whole lot about the book series that it's based on, but uh, we see how Asan gives the first book to his uh, teenage son, uh, partway through because he thinks, oh, you'll be interested in this. So that to me kind of suggests that maybe in France, Arsène Lupin is more targeted at preteens and teenagers. So maybe we're getting kind of like a, a slightly simplified, um, cleaned up type of show here, which is not supposed to be quite as mature and gritty and filled with subtext. Like you're not getting super complicated character relationships or uh, Asan is not faced with any real heavy duty moral kind of problems. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward because they, they present Lupin early on uh, or Asan, I should say, as like a genuine hero. Like he's a nice guy. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm also curious, like in the later episodes, do we ever see him hone his skills? Like, does he ever have a mentor? Like, how does he become this orphan teenage boy to who he is today? Because I imagine that that craft takes time to to perfect. Yeah. No, they they never they never mention a mentor. I mean, I guess, you know, they the they could definitely add that character in at a future date but so far it seems like he when when he's asked about it by other characters he always says oh no i just studied the book over and over i read it a million times over and just practiced a lot and that's so ridiculous you're expected to yeah. suspend your disbelief quite a bit and you know just allow for the fact that the cops are going to be bungling the the investigation the whole time and that you know none of these people that uh Asen crosses paths with are going to recognize him and that he's got a solution for everything. And it seems to just come to him very naturally. And he doesn't he doesn't meet a whole lot of resistance. There's probably the scariest thing that happens to him is I can't remember if it was like the second or third episode, but he allows some uh, drug dealers in a prison to uh, shank him so that he ends up in the prison infirmary. So because he needs to talk to a guy who's holed up there long term in the infirmary. (laughs) And I'm like, whoa, that's like prison break. Yeah, it's it's kind of intense. Like, I mean, that's the like he obviously get, allows himself to get stabbed. They don't show the the actual guy stabbing him. They just show like the bloody shank falling to the ground in the prison yard. But so again, they're cleaning it up a little bit. Um, so like, yeah, I'm I'm with you. I expected something grittier. So, um, I I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would, and I, I definitely don't think it's as good as everyone says. I can see now why it kind of shot up on the on the top ten lists because it is very mainstream it's harmless fun harmless fun right? it doesn't yeah. expect a lot from you um may, you know maybe they could if they uh, like we were saying if they get more parts release more seasons maybe they could do a bit more of the gritty stuff but i feel like this is the overall vibe of the show now yeah that, you know that's fine if, if that's what people like then you ever seen um detective conan which is this like japanese anime series no okay so uh, very briefly it reminds me of that where you know, you deal with like, you know, really heavy stuff like suicide, murder, theft, blah, blah, blah. But it's always shown in like a very lighthearted manner so that you never forget that this is just purely entertainment. And that's what I took away from it. Speaking of entertaining, WandaVision. I am pre- pleasantly surprised how much I've been liking the show so far. So am I. Especially the most recent episode. We now have first-person intel from inside the Westview anomaly. What are we looking at here? Is it an alternate reality, time travel? It's a sitcom. Starring two Avengers? It's a working theory. Well, I know the apron is a bit much, dear, but I am doing my best to blend in. So the beginning was, like, slow, right? And you kind of got the idea, and we both talked about this, too, about how, like, clearly she has invented Westview to protect herself and insulate herself. Yeah, they kind of dropped that breadcrumb right at the end of episode two. And it's at that point, it, there's... And it's the only way that could really explain the things that was going on, right? Yeah, like you hear uh, the you hear the voice in episode two of the person who we come to see is uh, Jimmy Woo, played by Randall Park, um, saying, who's doing this to you, Wanda? Who's doing this to you? So at that point, we, we don't know... Y- 
know enough about the setup yet to to understand, but um, there's still a, a possibility that maybe Wanda and Vision have been trapped in there by some supervillain. Yeah, fair, uh, fair. That that that's still a possibility. But they close that that door a couple of episodes later by revealing, and this is the, one of the, the biggest parts of the, the most recent episode, episode five, that Wanda is just grieving so much about losing Vision and how this government agency sword has taken ownership of Vision's body following the events of Infinity War, and I guess Endgame too, because this seems to be post-Endgame. That's that's another thing we've learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That she has created this reality for her to live in, and she's kind of going back to the the mindset that she was in uh, before, before the Avengers crossed paths with her in Ultron. Right, right. I was going to say too, uh, it, it's, it's starting to become more interesting because there's more conflict, especially between her and Vision. Before that, it was just kind of like a shtick, you know, like the 50s, 60s, 70s sitcom. But now we're really going somewhere and we're also finding out how it ties into the Marvel universe. That was always one of the key questions. Like, how do these shows tie in? Like, are they just going to be spinoffs and random adventures? Or are they going to tie into a bigger story? And it really feels like they are. I kind of want to skip ahead, but do you want to just do you want to skip ahead to the end the big cliffhanger at the end. Well, we can get to that, but we should okay. we should set up a, a few things first. So, like, we do get a bit of an info dump in episodes four and five. We learn, like I was saying, that this seems to be taking place post Endgame. So, um, the character that we knew as Geraldine is actually the daughter of uh, Maria Rambo, who was uh, Captain Marvel's best friend, and she had been sucked into Westview while trying to investigate it alongside Jimmy Woo and. As part of the S.W.O.R.D.'s investigation, they've learned a lot about who these people in Westview are, the the nature of their relationships. They're all being held prisoner. Um, so that has that has really filled things out. I have to hand it to Disney uh, and the kind of brain trust out there because just like the Mandalorian, they're not stringing us along in these episodes. They they do drop a few breadcrumbs, but they give us the answers to the mysteries only a couple of episodes later, you know, they're doing that in Mandalorian too, where mm-hmm. um, they, you know, I at first I I talked about how the first two episodes of this show reminded me of Lost in that they were tr- laying out all these mysteries. But now by the time the, uh, the fifth episode has rolled around, everything has been resolved up until now. We know who the beehive guy is and we know um, yeah, yeah. why things were, why colors were changing from black and white to color. And, you know, we know the relationships. This is Marvel's genius where like obviously Kevin Feige has planned this whole thing out and everything just falls into place. It's not like a Damon Lindelof thing where he creates a thread that's so interesting but just abandons it because he's not quite sure what to do with it. Yeah, Everything in here is leading to something. So the fact that uh, Darcy Lewis uh, comes back from, from the Thor movies and shows up in this. Yes. Jimmy Woo, Monica Rambeau. She even mentions Captain Marvel by name. And, and we were sort of led to believe that there was some sort of falling out. Yes. Between her, her, grow, her as a kid and her growing up. And so I, I think it's really interesting. It adds so much to like the dynamics. Because sometimes with these superhero films, we're kind of too forced to accept that one dynamic so if you think about say wolverine and xavier so they be they're kind of like 
enemies at first, then they become friends, then they become great friends for the rest of their lives, right? It's it's kind of like a straight line. Right. But in this Marvel universe, they're changing allegiances, they're ups and downs with all sorts of various relationships. And and Scarlet Witch is a perfect example where she was kind of the enemy in Brainwash, she becomes Avenger, and now she's very much anti-Avenger, or, or at least anti-human world. Yeah, yeah. She's kind of retreated into herself. She's created this fictional universe. She's holding all these people hostage. Um, and it definitely, it shakes things up a little bit. It means that the the marketing that they did uh, before this show came out was a perfect teaser because at at the time we didn't <laughs> yeah. we didn't know for example who Catherine Kath- we had zero clue yeah we didn't know who Catherine Hahn's character was we thought maybe she was the villain maybe she was the or an emissary of the villain or something so it turns out that they they did a really good job of of just. Uh, sprinkling those breadcrumbs and just leading us down the path, and and uh, and now we are with the here we are with this um, uh, this most recent episode that feels very much like an extension of the broader MCU. You know, it does not feel sectioned off in any in any meaningful way, uh, while still being like a, a smaller scale stakes kind of thing where we're not dealing with like the end of the world or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, do you want to get uh, before we end, do you want to talk about this big reveal that they do at the end of episode five? Yes. As you know, like not many things really surprise me. And I'm one of those people who like, for the most part, don't mind spoilers when it comes to movies. So when when my friend texted me, he's like, have you seen the latest episode? And I said, no. He's like, well, there's a spoiler. Do you care for it? And I said, you know, no. And he texted me and I read it and it literally blew my mind. And, like I got so excited, I like I went to my team and I watched it right on. I, I stopped whatever I was doing, wow, because I was intending to watch it later. But I was like, all right, I need to watch this right now. But the big spoiler is at the end of the show when we learn that Scarlet Witch has created Westview and pretty much kicked everyone out who's who who isn't supposed to be there. We learn that Quicksilver has returned yeah or and not just any quicksilver not aaron taylor no. johnson it's evan peters it's the x-men quicksilver that comes yes in. so uh, th- that's that's uh disney saying in a very big way look we are uh we bought fox a couple of years ago we got a rights to all those characters after all this time everyone all of the the comics blogs and the movie blogs were wondering how are they going to fold these characters into the universe and this is our first hint and now we know yeah so now we know that like um I, I assumed when that acquisition happened that uh, they were just going to recast all the X-Men characters and yeah, clean break. You I know. kind of assumed that, too. Um, but now, you know, if Evan Peters is in here, that means that they could pick and choose from some of the existing X-Men performers. You know, that we know that Hugh Jackman probably won't come back as Wolverine unless something big happens on that front. You mean by something big, you mean buttloads of money. <laughs> Butler's of money, yeah. And I mean, we, but I think as as a as an artist, I think Hugh Jackman has kind of said like Logan was his final outing, and it it was a good ending for the character and for his time as the character. I agree with him. But we could see uh, Patrick Stewart come in as Professor X. We could see. Uh, help. Um, we won't see Jennifer Lawrence. We're, we're pretty confident that she's uh, done and dusted with. Uh, she shouldn't, yeah, come back. Yeah, either, she's yeah. Not, she's not super invested in in that world anymore. Anyway, you can see Sophie Turner come in as uh, Phoenix slash Jean Grey. Um, any of those people. So I really love the young X Men cast. So other than Jennifer Lawrence, of course, I thought Sophie Turner, Alexander Ship, Ty Sheridan. I thought the casting was really spot on. It's just unfortunate that they made shitty movies. Yeah. But here's my question, and and this is kind of like pervasive throughout all superhero mashups and, and altered timelines and whatnot. 
So if Evan Peters as Quicksilver is a young adult during, uh, you know, the, the 60s or 70s, whatever it is, he, shouldn't he be like a full-blown like middle-aged man by this point? Yeah, well, and the, here's where things get really kind of wild and comic booky, I guess, because Scarlet Witch seems just as surprised as anyone else that this guy who calls himself her brother and has his hairstyle the same way um, has shown up at her door. So she she clearly is is kind of still getting used to her ability to actually like I guess reconstitute matter like she did with her kids. Although like Rambo did tease earlier in the episode that they needed someone special to like penetrate that that wall or whatever that Wanda had put up. Yeah. And so that was kind of your first hint. But yeah, the aging thing, like are we looking at multiple universes now? Like if you drop Sophie Turner like right now into this world, it'd be like she hasn't aged in like the 30 years since. It doesn't make any sense. In this Marvel universe, uh, assuming the X-Men are around right at the same time, these should all be like semi-retired, like people in their 40s and 50s, you know? Yeah. So I'm I'm wondering how that fold that in. It is interesting that they use Evan Peters without like the, the aging makeup, or maybe he did, but it was really difficult to tell. No, he seemed to be pretty much the same age that he was in the last X-Men outing, which I can't, yeah. was he in the one, the Phoenix one that they that everyone hated? Uh, Yes, he was because he, there was the same sequence where he saved everyone from the X-Mansion and was blowing up. But he wasn't, he didn't have a big role. But at, at the same time, like again, the, the timelines don't really match up. Yeah, I guess this is part of the, it's kind of like what's happening over in the Spider-Man universe where- <laughs> Right, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. Yeah, and you can argue that Endgame kind of kicked it off in a way because for the longest time, a lot of these uh, cinematic universes weren't really playing around too much with time travel or with multiple dimensions. But then, yeah, they just had to introduce it. It's a rabbit hole now. Yeah, but with like uh, with Spider Verse, I guess was even predated Endgame. Like Spider Verse set up the possibility for multiple iterations of characters to cross over with each other, um, and Endgame continued it with the time travel concept. And now we've got uh, characters from previously uh, non coexisting franchises crossing over into into each other. So there's a lot of stuff that. Kevin Feige and the Brain Trust are going to have to do to kind of establish what the rules of this partnership is and who can pop up where. It, but it's exciting because I really don't know where the series is going now. Yeah. Like if Scarlet Witch ends this uh, miniseries and becomes the villain for like the next phase, I would not be surprised. If her and Quicksilver team up with the X-Men at the end of the series, I would not be surprised. If Scarlet Witch comes back and and is becomes sort of the strongest Avenger as she was supposed to be and becomes the leader of the new Avengers, I wouldn't be surprised either. I think it could go all sorts of different directions and and just them laying the seeds. And plus, we also got the TV trailer or the debut of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Right. And I'm sure that will actually bring more light to whatever's been going on as well. Because Baron Zemo's back, right? And was did did he die in Civil War? I, I can't remember exactly. Or did he escape? I thought he died. I can't remember. It's too many movies ago. But yeah, the, I don't think he died because they're they're not really about killing off their enemies. Um, well, if they do, they just bring them back. But but your your note about how Scarlet Witch could become the big bad of the foreseeable future is an interesting one because there is a line in that episode where they say, "Oh, Scarlet Witch could have killed Thanos if X, Y, and Z." 
Yeah. Um, so they they're they're they use that line, I think, to kind of establish a baseline. They're like, yeah, she's just as powerful as Thanos. She could have killed him. Yeah. So and she's totally gone rogue. Right. So um, and that would be an interesting dynamic, too. You know, if, if she uh, became the big bad for a while and then maybe some other villain from the Marvel pantheon comes in to kind of challenge her recruiter or something. Well, yeah, because if, if you're going to re- reunite her with Quicksilver, the next logical reunion is Magneto. Oh, yeah, okay. So if, if you have Magneto, you have Quicksilver, you have Scarlet Witch, you have a pretty strong brotherhood of mutants already. And, uh, I mean, I hate to speculate, but I kind of get lost in these comics because it, it go, it's all over the place. But there's a, a series called House of M where Wanda is one of the biggest villains in, in the mutant universe. And she ends up you know, killing a whole bunch of oh. uh, superheroes along with it. Or I, I think she takes away a lot of their powers or something like that. So I can see them heading down that path. Okay. I'm genuinely ex- excited. This is actually one of the better shows out there. And I was kind of lukewarm about Falcon and the Winter Soldier because I wasn't too invested in either of those two characters. Yeah, neither was I. Yeah. And, and But now, like, I'm curious about what they do in that show, too. So kudos to Disney for, like, reeling me in with this stuff. It's, it's never going to end, Robert. <sighs> like, we, we better get used to it. I, I, I do think there is a, a bit of a pullback in, in interest because there hasn't been like this big film that they're building up to but i imagine 10 years from now we'll have another big huge superhero team up that's just gonna make billions and billions and billions yeah it's of all it's you know uh, as we we talked about before when disney revealed their slates of all the shows they're working on both in the star wars universe and in the marvel universe i mean it, it's clear that they just want it so that we never watch anything that's not Disney ever again. And (laughs) I mean, I will say personally, I'm not enough of a fan to indulge them. I think there will be a cutoff for me. There'll be certain shows like I, unless something truly wild happens on, um, (laughs) you say that now (laughs) a Falcon and the winter soldier. Like I'm, I'm probably not going to watch that show when it, when it premieres, they're going to have to do a lot of work to interest me in that. Cause I'll watch it and I'll tell you how good it is. Okay. Yeah. yeah you do that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but, but uh, uh, I watched WandaVision only kind of pa- with a passing interest. And now here I am. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Into yeah, yeah. it. So yeah, you, you have to give their story story department a lot of credit. You know, the, there's, there's a lot to be said for planning these things out and, and making it feel like, you know, we're not being strung along and they're making stuff up as they go along like Star Wars. <laughs> That's right. Well, you know what? Five years from now, ten years from now, there's going to be Star Wars filming. You're going to be all over that stuff again. Hey, well, I mean, honestly, I'm going to be all over Star Wars no matter what happens. I mean, really? You, you think you think Star Wars has enough clout with you that no matter how badly they screw up, you're always going to be vested? Right now, they still have a lot of goodwill with me. I mean, the shows, like I said, the shows, There's. I'm not going to watch all the shows. I'm not going to watch the, watch the Cara Dune show or the Cassian Andor show or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll continue to watch The Mandalorian. I probably won't watch the Boba Fett show unless, again, there's some really compelling reason to get into it well that's partly because i think we feel cheated that the mandalorian was kind of like an extended trailer for boba fett or at least that last episode was i'm more interested in the obi-wan show i think that's i just because i like ewan mcgregor as as an actor with hayden christensen Again, you I'm don't hoping say, he's not, come on, I'm, Hayden, Hayden. No, I'm hoping Hayden. he's I'm hoping he's in it in like cameos or something because I won't be able to. You know, he's not. Anakin was always more interesting, I think. 
Huge sigh. <laughs> anyway, the, the Star Wars thing that I'm most excited for is their uh, flashback 200 years in the past, this uh, uh, High Republic stuff they're working on that's currently only being done in uh, comic books and novels, but that is the groundwork that they're right. doing for the, the next movie. So... Um, the well, I guess um, Patty Jenkins' Rogue Squadron movie will come out on Disney Plus in between then and now. I'd forgotten about but, that. Wow. Uh, the next big theatrical movie is supposed to be based on this uh, story that they're setting up 200 years before the events of the Skywalker saga. But yeah, we'll get to that when we get to that. Which is actually a great way to end the episode. Yeah, so um, like I said, there's a full review of Promising Young Woman up there on the website in case you'd like to take a look. I'm thinking of doing a review of uh, Malcolm and Marie as well. So keep your eyes open for that. In the meantime, please give us a shout out on social media. J. Robert Snow on Twitter, Jason Chen 16 on Twitter. Uh, you can find us on Spotify. And if you enjoyed this episode, please click subscribe. Please click like, give us a rating. It'll help us be more visible to all the other potential listeners that are out there, uh, aside from family members. <laughs> <laughs> but without any further ado, my name is Jason Chen. And my name is Robert Snow. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you next time.